Hey, Rockheads. It's that time of year again to come up with a good excuse to join me and Richard at NDC London. Fortunately, all you have to do is tell your boss the truth. You want to learn about the latest technology and hobnob with the likes of Scott Hanselman, Lily Dart, Eric Meyer, Scott Allen, John Skeet, Jesse Sternschuss, Troy Hunt, Damian Edwards, and many more. NDC London 2016 is a full-week event with pre-conference workshops on January 11th and 12th and the actual conference on January 13th through the 15th. So go to ndc-london.com right now, and we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1218, with guest Paul Mooney. Recorded Thursday, November 12th, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's time for .NET Rocks again. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're here. Paul Mooney is here. We're going to be talking microservice design. How you doing, my friend? I have got a uh, already hangover. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, tell everybody what already is, because this is something we did at the end of the uh, MVP Summit. So at the end of the MVP Summit, well, that's not true, actually. Already started all the way back to the Visual Studio 2015 launch. This is an app that Humanitarian Toolbox is building for the Red Cross to help folks uh, coordinate volunteers uh, with specialty skills. So the example is helping getting smoke detectors installed in homes that don't have smoke detectors. So we got the detectors. What we need is qualified installers. Mm. And so they have this mobile app so that we can use their time efficiently to get as many smoke detectors installed as we can. The app was started actually by a, a group at Microsoft as part of the Visual Studio 2015 launch. Uh, but coming into the MVP summit about a month or so before, we talked about putting together another gathering. And actually, it was Dimitri Leallen who uh, offered to cover some costs. Uh, but he wanted, and he wanted community folks to work on it. We already had a bunch of people that were developing on this regularly. Mm. Uh, you know, it becomes addictive building this kind of software. Right. And it's even better when you get everybody together at a hackathon sort of setting. And that's what you did. Yeah. So we, we actually got the garage, which is this famous space in Building 27, for the weekend. And, uh, but several weeks before we, we started pulling together some folks, some, a few MVPs like James Chambers and, and, uh, David Paquette, uh, a few RDs, yourself, Rocky Latka, Sean Wildermuth, and some, you know, not named, you know, <laughs> the right. regular developers, people who just build software, uh, and really nice folks. And they got excited. I, I'm looking at the check-in stack. I'm still crunching all the numbers. We're talking somewhere in the neighborhoods of, of, 350 commits to the trunk. Wow. Uh, now, and what's interesting is they, so there were, there were literally several weeks of, of check-ins coming in. The explosion over the weekend was incredible when we worked full time, mm. but it has not stopped. We are sprinting to actually testing this app in the field by the end of the month. We've got the Red Cross folks involved. They're already tinkering with the software. So we'll have a minimal viable product ready in the next week or so. And you were there too, my friend. Yeah, I was. It was great. I, I loved the energy and the vibe. And every there was a couple of AppV Next guys there. Yeah. Joel Hewlin, the guy who built our website, uh, the new .NET Rocks website, was working on it. Of course, our friend Bill Wagner was there. Yep. And, and uh, uh, who's been part of the Humanitarian Toolbox is almost the very beginning. Yep. Uh, and we had a few spouses there that were doing testing. Mm-hmm. Which was really cool to have, uh, we have, have issues added in as they actually tried the software 
in the early stage and said, well, why does it work like this? And why does it work like that? So, yeah. you know, we, we're now talking about, I think we've got a formula for humanitarian toolbox about, it turns out doing the hard work of actually organizing the issues really well into milestones makes a huge difference. But this dynamic that you could do a weekend codeathon, and because it's not just pure geekiness, it's also testing and understanding the software and so forth, speaks to a larger community can participate in it. I'm, we're still feeling around for this, but I'm really excited about it. Well, that's awesome, Richard. It was a wonderful experience, and I'm sure we'll hear more about that soon. But I have something interesting for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? This was a suggestion by an alert listener. It's Stuntman. And of course, tinyurl.com slash Stuntman was taken. So right. I had to make it French. It's Le Stuntman. Le Stuntman. <laughs> <laughs> tinyurl.com slash L-E Stuntman. Well, Stuntman's a library for impersonating users during development, leveraging .NET claims identity. Used primarily in, I'm reading right off the website here, used primarily in web environments like ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Web Forms, and OWN applications that serve HTML. This allows you to test different user scenarios that exist in your app with minimal friction. Also allows you to share those scenarios with other team members via source control. Isn't that I cool? I love everything about this. This is pure awesome. It's pure awesome. It, <laughs> It's like mocking for users. Mocking for, exactly. And and actually being able to build proper tests of what does it look like a regular user in, logs in, an admin user, somebody who's locked out, like just to be able to run through all that as part of your normal suite of tests. That, that is genius. Yep, beautiful. So there you go. Stuntman, know it, learn it, love it. I'm sure we're going to be talking about it more. And uh, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off a show 1103, one we did talking about test-driven development with both .NET and Java with a certain Paul Mooney. Yep. You may have heard of this. May guy. have heard of Paul. And uh, stimulated a lot of conversation, by the way. There was a very busy uh, uh, discuss section for his show. Yep. And Joshua Carmody said, uh, there are indeed developers who do both .NET and Java. And I am one of them. Mm -hmm. By day, I work on our ASP.NET MVC-based software-as-a-service offering, writing C-Sharp and Visual Studio. And by, by night, night, I work on Batman. my side projects, which are currently... <laughs> I know. And by night, I'm a superhero. It's, it's, it's right there. But let me do it. Ah, <laughs> uh, Josh, you're too awesome for us. By night, I work on my side projects, which are currently Android apps written in Java using Android Studio. I consider myself a C-sharp developer first and foremost, but I'm interested in becoming a skilled Android developer as well. And I love that he's dove in completely with a different dev environment, different language, different everything. Mm. But he goes on to say, of course you can write Android apps in C-sharp using tools like Xamarin, but I feel that learning to code Android apps in the standard way in Android Studio gives me a more versatile skill set. All right. If I was interviewing at an Android-centric shop and they asked me to debug some Java-based Android code as part Part of the interviewing process, the reply, oh, I can only code Android apps in C-sharp, would quickly get me shown the door. Right. As you said during the episode, C-sharp and Java are very similar. I can usually remember the big differences, like the fact that Java does not have properties like C-sharp does. It's the small differences that I keep tripping on. Getters well and setters. Getters and setters. <laughs> oh, gotta remember that. Oh. On dozens of occasions, I have typed private static final int in C-sharp <laughs> only to have it replace final with read-only <laughs> when the compiler balks. Oh, man. Uh, and on several occasions, I've had the Java complain when I try to declare a top-level class static, which is not legal in Java. Nope. 
Despite that, the two languages are more similar than they are different, and I feel that studying one has made me better at the other. I'm currently 75% of my way through the book Effective Java by Joshua Block, and many of the tips I've picked up in the book have made their way into my C-sharp programs. When I finish the book, I plan to read Effective C-sharp by Bill Wagner, yeah. and I expect my Java code will benefit as well. Absolutely. That great comment. Fantastic. Yeah, I love that. Just, you know, deliberately exercising different skills and getting better for it all around. Uh, Josh, your awesomeness deserves a .NET Rocks mug. We're going to send it out to you right away. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social media. We post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we'll read it on the show and you'll get a mug. And, of course, we tweet. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Please send us tweets. We love it. And that brings us to our guest returning to the show for the second time. Paul Mooney is the creator of the Encrypted Token Pattern and Armor, its .NET implementation. He specializes in taking apart problems, designing solutions, and providing those solutions as downloadable software frameworks available under the MIT license. Paul occupies the space between engineer and architect. He's happiest when designing solutions to problems from a conceptual point of view while getting his hands dirty assembling the nuts and bolts. Basically, he does everything. For that reason, he tries to avoid titles, but if he had to brand himself, it would be as a technology consultant. Paul is most accomplished in C-sharp in terms of language. However, he's very proficient in JavaScript, Java, and Golang. Paul's a software developer mentor and enjoys guiding teams of engineers toward effective technology-driven solutions to real-world problems. Welcome back, Paul Mooney. Hi, guys. How are things? Great. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Doing the thing with the stuff. Doing the thing with the stuff. Yeah. I, I sort of heard you going, yep, yep. Uh, when Richard was reading that comment, anything that you want to add? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> as I said, it was um, it was great to have such, such a large volume of feedback, first of all. And, um, I mean... In terms of the comments themselves, I think I did reply to each one of them individually. And as you said, uh, it was a very, very well thought out, very concise comment. And uh, he's bang on the money in terms of his uh, subject matter. Yes, indeed. Yeah, you only make yourself better by exercising your programming skills with different tools, I think. Just broadens your horizons. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So what have you been up to lately? Microservices world, huh? Yeah, yeah, been um, knee deep in microservices for the last few months. Uh, something that I sort of initially dipped my toe in the water in about a year ago, and since then um, I, I I can't seem to shake it off. Well, you know, I think a fundamental idea of how systems are put together is changing, and you know, I blame the cloud for this. But we used to think, oh, we've got a box, and we've got a decide Oracle or SQL Server, and then we've got a web server, and we got to decide what we're going to use for that. And then, you know, everything else sort of fits into that, right? And whatever services we can hang off of it, great. And now, you know, you can do anything anywhere and, and break down our complex systems into these little pieces, and each piece gets to decide its own technology. It's a different way of thinking, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's a funny thing, you know. I think microservices in at this point in time are comparable to the concept of big data. You know, um, I mean, both. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I, I, I talk about it so much. Um, 
one of the uh, big data at the moment is is very much sort of subject to how would you put it excessive verbosity maybe it's um it's very difficult to to find anything concrete in that mm. subject matter it's, it's it's and i think microservices are are very similar so in that regard um i try to i try to back up everything at least with some sort of a concrete implementation you know to prove the concept mm-hmm. um but yeah, I mean, it's um, as a tool, it's fantastic. And I suppose to pick up on your point there, as regards, you know, you you, you should really extend your skill set by tampering or by playing with different languages. I think um, I think microservices really offers a great, almost playground to facilitate that. Yeah, sure does. I, and the trick just becomes keeping up with all of these technologies and f- yeah. knowing what to use when. And that's, you know, it comes down, I, I've been telling Richard this the last couple of weeks. I think I could describe modern programming life in terms of buttons, right? The whole sure. trick is knowing what buttons to push when. <laughs> you know, if you, if you know the buttons to push at the right time, you're a genius. If you push the wrong button at the right time, you're stupid. If you push the right button at the wrong time, you need help. <laughs> it reminds me of that quote I read there. Um, was it some uh, famous software developer was asked uh, to de- to define his role? He said, uh, "I get paid to to search Google for a living." <laughs> <laughs> I organize electrons for a living. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. You know. We've been making, I, I wonder if microservices didn't come along because we got tired of making fun of service oriented architecture. Yeah. So yeah. We need, we needed a new name. And I went and grabbed Martin Fowler's article on microservices, which, I mean, once Fowler writes about it, it must be real, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, SOA seems like big and grand and like it's already been figured out. Now you just have to figure out what somebody else means, right? Microservices is the, the whole name implies. You know, break it down, start small, and uh, concentrate on each little piece. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the way I, what I always say to people is, um, you know, if, if, if when you're designing these solutions, unless they're sufficiently easy to interpret, such that a child can read it, uh, you haven't worked hard enough. You haven't you haven't completed the job. You know, because. Um, you can very quickly become entangled in the in the complexities of of these uh, of these systems. And I think that turns a lot of people off. Is there a standard design methodology, or is it just common sense? Just break it, break things down, start small, and build up from there. Well, that's certainly the way the way uh, the way I started with the with the concept of microservices. You know, I think um, I think if you if you fresh. If you're fresh into the topic and you attempt to take apart some sort of a monolithic application and completely reconsecrate it as a microservice-based application, I think you're going to run into trouble. You know, I would start with sort of, um, I mean, if you want to put this into practice, my, my, my personal advice would be to start with, a, I suppose, a non, the, the least disruptive uh, feature you can, you know, mm. something that's not necessarily, if it's going to fall offline, going to cause a whole lot of damage and, and move on from there, I guess. Mm-hmm. So is that your distinction between a service and a microservice? You hate it when a service goes down. You don't really care when a microservice one does. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> so I, I'm still getting my hand around this definition of like what makes it a microservice versus a service. 
Well, uh, a friend of mine actually, um, we had a chat the other day, and he was um, he he came he coined a, a pretty good term, which I thought uh, Shane Shane Gray. He said um, he likes to refer to them as uh, functional services or focused services, you know, right. which I think um, I think really kind of sums it up, and is probably a little bit, you know, microservice is a fairly vague term, um, yeah, you know, where it's a focused service. I mean, really, really captures the 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 intention there, which is essentially it's a a service that has one task, one task only. You know, it's you're breaking things down to first principles here and this mm-hmm. thing has a single job a single job only and it exists i suppose i won't say in isolation but within its own bounded context and uh i guess that's about i suppose but one task doesn't mean one method just one domain one focus oh absolutely not no i mean um, certainly not one method but um no one one i suppose depending on depending on the the, the underlying context you could define it as one business feature or one um you know one technology uh, you could map it to an assembly i suppose you know if you were a, if you're a desktop developer or you know thinking about this in terms of your world that might be a good analogy good place to start at the assembly level absolutely so customer Oh, you mean a class? Like at <laughs> the class level? I don't know about that. Yeah, I've said like I said, I'm just trying to lay lay a hand on this thing and say, what what is it? What would be a microservice? <laughs> I suppose um I, one of the I, I recently did a talk uh, in Ireland now in Dublin um, on the in the Dublin microservice group and um, one of the th- things I covered there were the softer elements of microservices you know the um, I suppose selling it to the business because that's that's always a challenge I mean you've two I suppose two challenges there the first being to sell it to the business in terms of you know return on investment and then the second to sell it to your colleagues your engineering. Um, counterparts you know why 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 would they uh, why would they drop what they're doing and, and, and pick this up so i suppose um in terms of in that regard the best way um, i found to explain the concept is by way of example and um i gave such an example at a recent talk on the dublin microservice group where i compared it to i suppose an airline software so in a, a typical airline you know, they're concentrated on what they refer to as ancillary revenue. So, you know, they make a lot of money from things like car hire, um, hotel booking and so forth. So um, you could argue that a good case, this would be a good case for microservices in that you might have a microservice that's purely focused on delivering, you know, car hire uh, and a microservice purely focused on delivering hotel bookings and so forth. The idea being that um, they don't necessarily need to be invoked by the user. Right. The example, the example I gave in this case in terms of selling it to the business is that um, as a website, you have a very limited opportunity to interface with the customer, with the user. I mean, if you think about it, like most of the time, a user is sitting there staring at the screen, reading. They're not generally not interacting with the site. And it's only at the point of interaction where they actually click a button or, or, or invoke a feature that you can actually, I suppose, cross-sell or, or, or sell to them directly. So with microservices, they sort of imply an open channel of communication, a constant channel that's there with the customer. Mm. And you can you can I suppose it's it's more asynchronous as opposed to synchronous. You know, so you can actually engage with the user arguably at a greater degree of precision and therefore for example, you know, the user comes in and searches for flight details. I want to go from point A to point B on these dates, you know, there's not a whole lot can happen at that point other than we can give them that information. But then at that point, let's say they've chosen um, Vancouver as a destination. At that point, then our hotel microservice 
which hasn't been invoked directly by the customer in that they haven't actually requested this feature, it might kick in and go, oh, hey, I'm listening here in the background. I've just seen this guy wants to go to Vancouver. I can potentially book a room for him there. So I'm going to jump in and push some information down to the client on an, you know, without having been invoked directly. Mm. I've, uh, I'm a big fan of web jobs in Azure. And uh, web jobs are a great way to do these sort of bolt-on services that, uh, you know, for example, I have one that watches the, the orders that come in through uh, Music to Code by. And uh, whenever there's a new order... Uh, it basically just sends me a text. And so uh, it's a very simple thing. And uh, then on my phone, I have that uh, I have that connected to a funny alarm, you know. So, but that, you know, that's something that sits outside of your system and it doesn't, uh, it just assumes that the system is working properly. But if the system isn't working properly, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to, miscalculate it's not going to misfire it's not going to affect the system it's a it's its own little closed system absolutely that's a superb summary of uh what i of uh what was probably uh (laughs) an overly verbose answer to your question that i that i gave (laughs) well that's all right we need both (laughs) (laughs) absolutely yeah this portion of dotnet rocks is brought to you by our friends at stackify If your app runs on Azure, or if you're considering launching an Azure soon, Stackify is the only integrated APM and error log management platform that was designed with Azure in mind. Stackify's Azure expertise can identify problems before you launch and help you know the difference between apps problems and Azure problems so you can fix issues fast. Try Stackify now for free and get the hilarious Developers Against Humanity card game. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks. All right, so I part of me just thinks that this becomes a big deal when we do deal with the cloud because we're pulling in services from third parties, that you want a granularity that matches up with whatever service you're pulling from another platform. Does that make any sense? Like, are we really thinking, when we think about the application structure of microservice, not everything is written by you, it's coming from other places? Absolutely. And I mean, I think that also raises the point that we, we, we spoke about earlier in terms of uh, multiple technologies, you know, I mean, uh, typically, uh, really, really, the, 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 once these services are in place, the, the vast majority of the work, the effort, I suppose, comes down to the interface between these systems, you know, what do they support in terms of uh, JSON and XML uh, message, message encoding and what have you, really, 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 really comes down to that level, you know, is in we have the service here, it does a job, that's a given, you just need to be able to interface with it in some capacity. Well, and I get the sense that one part of microservices reading Fowler's paper was, we're stripping away an awful lot of the protocol complexities that came out of SO, which still is from the WS star. This is REST and at least just HTTP. And, you know, the, all of that sort of stuff, all the other options there have been taken off the table. It's just not as complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, you know, I suppose that... Uh... In terms of service discoverability as well, it makes it a lot more, a lot easier, you know, to you cringe every time you see some sort of a soap envelope or, um, or a service discovery document, whereas given the rest is such a easy to understand and open standard. Um, Dude, you know. Wisdle is your friend. Oh, Everybody needs to read on. more XML. <laughs> you know, it was a good, it was a good start. <laughs> That's fair. 
We we had the best of intentions. Remember back when we were being told that XML was human readable? I remember that. I blame Don Box. <laughs> I thought I was going to blame Tim Berners Lee because everything he does is magical until he did XML. <laughs> but okay, yeah, we're trying to keep it super simple. I mean, what do you do if you're not going to do Wisdom? Like, what do, what do you do as far as discovery is concerned? It's just let Russ pick that up. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I'll, I'll open that to anyone. Um, in my experience, uh, REST has been the most, uh, the simplest, I suppose, path to path of deployment that I've encountered so far. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's such a, I suppose, I won't say flexible. It's such a it, it's such a simplified framework. You know, I think uh, anybody can pick it up quite quickly, and it's generally quite obvious as regards what needs to be done in order to, inter- to interface with a specific service that's exposed through REST. Right. Yeah, all of that stuff simply implied. You don't have to think about it. But I also feel like nobody ever built the app that would actually go out and dynamically discover a service and start utilizing it. Like that just doesn't actually happen in real life. You, in the end, you write your code to a specific service for a particular purpose. Absolutely. So yeah, that, that dream. Remember UDDI? Jeez. Remember that dream where we're just going to go, hey, I need a credit card processor. And somebody was going to come <laughs> along and say yes, and you were going to process transactions with them and never talk to them again. Hey, man, it was great for demos. <laughs> Let's yes. say you want think- to look up a zip code. Uh, I think I did a Swedish chef translator back <laughs> in the day <laughs> that I discovered with UDDI, and I felt really good about bork, bork, borking everything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't always flirty bert, gertty flirty flooping. <laughs> but when I do, I use UDI. I use Have you seen, getting completely off topic, this whole discussion around schemas for Jason? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Make the bad man stop. It's like they just want to reinvent that. They want to. Yeah. We did this. Let's bring all that soap goodness to something that's pure <laughs> and simple. I will include a link to jasonschema.org because it exists. All right. I don't know how I feel about this yet. And There's I, a lot I'm to not going to pass judgment, but my first reaction is, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> We're going, we're going to do that again, huh? <laughs> yeah, I've actually encountered JSON schema in the wild, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a horrible beast to wrestle with. <laughs> um, I've used it with specifically with uh, Swagger documentation. Um, oh yeah, you know, and um, yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's not always obvious as regards what the actual error is when you compare your schema against the one online, and usually it boils down to some sort of a minor bug. You know, oh well, this language interprets false as being false, whereas this one interprets it as being zero and so forth, which right. is, uh, you know, just a nightmare to deal with. Yeah, well, so you think that they, why why go down the path of schema? There were so many other ways to deal with these validation problems. Absolutely. I mean, it's just like, uh, uh, do we have to again? And, and that's the reaction I get from all the old people. And let's face it, we're the old people. Yeah. When we, when they see this going on, it's like, we're going to do that again, huh? Okay. I'm not going to try and talk you out of it. I'm just warning you. I'm going to say <laughs> I told you so in a few months. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We anytime we were actually building software. So. Do you agree with this whole, this is about the cloud when we talk about microservices, Paul? Yes. Um, I wouldn't say it's limited to the cloud. No. Um, but uh, absolutely, it's, um, I suppose it embraces 
the idea or the concept of the cloud. I mean, if ever there were a, a specific ideology or framework that, you know, were custom made for the cloud, I suppose, yeah. you could argue that this is it. Especially when you throw in containers and things like that. Like everything we've been doing lately in getting into rapid deployment has been granularizing the code more and more into smaller pieces so you can roll it faster. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, uh, containers there, Docker is a prime example of that. I, I think um, there is, on the other, you know, the, the, the argument against it is that it does or it can potentially introduce a lot of complexity to your to your, um, to your deployment, you know. It used to be a... <laughs> I suppose the the people argue some some argue that you know it was a simple sort of team back in the day or even well, I say back in the day a couple of years ago you had a, a single application a single continuous integration plan and a single right. artifact to deploy whereas now it's into the area of containers and so forth and continuous parallel deployments and what have you but I think um, I think right now I suppose we're really at the point where there are so many people working on this that there are frameworks emerging to help with that. Yeah, I mean, when I first put together my own microservice framework, we built everything from scratch, my team and I, in uh, using .NET, RabbitMQ, and um, a couple of other tools, um, services in AWS and Azure, for example. Whereas if I were to, this was um, about a year ago, if I were to repeat that exercise, I certainly wouldn't be diving in at such a low level again. There are plenty of frameworks, for example, um, Aka.net and so forth, and there's right. CAD on the Node.js side. So my point is, I think this stuff is being wrapped up. You know, it's like any emerging technology. It's always um, it's scattered into very small, minute, precise pieces in the beginning. And over time, they combine together and they become almost plug and play. Well, one element that I've run into recently is this conversation about how often are we adjusting our architecture to deal with pain points like deployment that you're actually putting things together so that you you have less things to deploy when it's actually more maintainable if they were put apart and so actually you know fixing deployment makes you make a better architecture because you're no longer fighting that yeah it's a very interesting point and um i think it's sort of Again, it ties into the concept of, you know, when this stuff comes out, it's brand new. It's uh, often introduces more complexities and arguably more problems than it solves. But um, sure. I suppose over time, it then it becomes part of the day-to-day. -day. I think, for example, you might see in, in the next five years, I'm, I'm confident, in fact, that you'll see... Um, Micro, plug-in microservice frameworks, you know, in terms of you, you, you will literally just um, write the business logic you'll be given. I mean, similar to my last post where we talked about behavioral-driven design, tools yep. like SpecFlow, spec they, they pretty yep. much offer the whole framework and you just write the, the, the tests in plain English. I think we will eventually, and, and probably very quickly, move toward that kind of a scenario, microservices, you know, where you don't actually have to worry about the underlying complexities of AMQP, service buses, and uh, service, I suppose, bound context parallelism and all that lovely stuff which is a shame if you ask me <laughs> yeah well, i i certainly know a lot of people that would like that as long as it worked well hey richard yeah buddy you know what time it is uh, i must be that happy time again yeah it's time to deactivate my bad joke detector microservice it basically listens for bad humor and whenever it hears me tell a bad joke it slaps my face i mean it gives me a wedgie <laughs> i mean oh crap turn it off turn it off <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going exactly? <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a music to code by collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Uh, no longer giving away the videos. Now uh, it's just the whole collection of all nine music to code by tracks. Ah, yes. Yeah. Um, 
And you know, Music to Code By was playing throughout the garage during our uh, Codeathon. Yeah, how did it work? It worked beautifully. You know, people. Uh, I don't think people even noticed it in the sense that it it doesn't attract attention to itself. Right. Yeah, that's what's great about it. Well, I'm I, I'm I just have been inundated with great comments and positive comments. I'm gonna put all these together in a little video, so be watching for that. But in the meantime, go to mtcb.poop.com. You can listen to the samples. The samples are four minutes long. And like I said, we're up to nine now. So check it out. See what all the fuss is about. Awesome, dude. So who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Dick Henderson. Congratulations, Dick. Yeah. Clap us for you, sir. Golf clap for you, sir. And uh, Dick just won the Music Code by Collection. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree. Coming up in just a little bit, you're going to hear the winner this year. Maybe it's you. But you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guest, Paul Mooney, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, I've thought about that. And um, I think my answer has got to be the same as I offered in the my previous interview, which is that I would probably kit out my office, you know, rather than spending it on the technology itself. I'd uh, look at, the, I suppose, office furniture and so yeah. forth. Make it nice and fancy. Have you done that yet? Since the last no, show, no, no. Actually, I, <laughs> I planned on we um we had a, a sale of a house fall through at the last show, but we've oh. uh, since secured, uh, since secured uh, another home. So uh, we hope to move in in the next few months, and um, I'd very much like to <laughs> put that thought into practice. Then, yeah, absolutely, I could see that happening. Well, that's cool. So, what did you have in mind? I mean, I, I'm trying to remember. It was January, I think, when we talked last or yeah. February. Yeah, it was quite a while ago. Um, I just had a little girl back then. Actually, she's nearly one now. So, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I haven't literally have not slept since then. But uh, <laughs> ah. <laughs> there you go. The nature of the beast. But um, yeah, uh, welcome. I, 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 thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's a pleasure. But um, one thing I would say: uh, whiteboards was um, one yeah. thing I would do. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have wall-to-wall whiteboards. If I could have everywhere I went whiteboards boards you know and uh, and uh, and just markers on me at any given time that would be uh you know that would be quite I'd, I'd be quite happy what if you could you know wear whiteboard goggles and so the world became your whiteboard like a hollow lens there you go <laughs> even better. on people with a, with a hollow lens everything's a whiteboard you just see my kid walks up to you with the glasses on starts drawing on your face and laughing that's not good <laughs> that's snapchat <laughs> i've had my 20 year old daughter walk up to me snap a picture with snapchat and make me barf rainbows it's hilarious uh, that's great what she say like guys- dad say ah yeah exactly <laughs> that's what technology's for yeah. today barfing rainbows right oh my goodness we were talking about microservice design, and you said something very important in the first half that I sort of jumped on me, which was RabbitMQ. And I, when I think about design, queuing systems are one of those things that are almost impossible to retrofit. It's got to be part of your design from the outset. Do you see everything is queue-driven? And why is that, Richard? Why is it hard to put in queue? Yeah, why is it hard to put a queue between point A and point B? One-way messaging. Yeah. That's the bear. That is the bugbear. Paul? 
Absolutely. Sorry, I'm just uh, I was just con- contemplating my answer. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, it boils down to the whole concept of decoupled middleware. I mean, the the queue is effectively a buffer between between services, isn't it? In 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 insofar as it's really controlling the traffic in that regard. Yep. Um. So in order to retrofit one is not necessarily the most straightforward task. Uh, retro to to fit it between service A and service B is fine, but when you have, I suppose, a complex ecosystem of multiple services, um, then things become tricky because now you've almost introduced. Well, you haven't introduced. I was going to say parallelism. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you've almost, you've got it something designed to be synchronous, and now all of a sudden yes. you're making it asynchronous, and that only works if you have async await. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and even then, Which is, uh, yeah. <laughs> I suppose that's one of the benefits of of a queuing system as well, though, in that um, it enables you to build, I suppose, what you might argue are parallel services, even though without having to worry about the complexities of multi-threading and parallelism itself. Yeah, you don't own the parallelism at all. You're just pushing messages to the queue. The price you're yeah. paying is that, and this is you know different with async than async await as well. Is there's no point in awaiting. There's nothing coming, right? It's a, it's yeah. an entirely separate response mechanism mm-hmm. when you as soon as you involve queues. How you find out what happened or what your set is or whatever you want it back is you've got to go look somewhere else, right? Definitely. And I think that's like, that's not a small architectural thing. I, I just feel like most people avoid queuing because this is a layer of complexity. They just don't buy into needing. Or it just, you know, makes them do too much rethinking or too much rearchitecting. And that's, that's what you're talking about here is when we have this mentality of decomposition and, you know, small services that are these little islands and pockets of, of service. You, when you're designing them from the get go, you can put, you know, RabbitMQ in there and you can put queues and you can put service buses and all these things that you need. But Richard's point is really true is that taking an existing system with existing services and decomposing it may turn into be, uh, may turn out to be very, very difficult. Absolutely. I mean, there, especially when you start getting into the whole area of message ordering and so forth. Uh, you know, messages coming out the end of the pipeline, not necessarily in the same order they arrived, and yep. and, and 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 then you then you end up in, uh, I suppose, AMQP hell. Hmm. Another hell for us to add to the list. Yeah. <laughs> first, Absolutely. there was DLL hell. <laughs> then. <laughs> There was framework hell, <laughs> and then there was NuGet hell, and now Q hell. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. we've been using MSMQ, which was a knockoff of IBM's MQ series for a long time. So long, people have just sort of forgotten about it. But AMQP and Rabbit's an implementer of that. These are just smarter protocols. Yeah. Right? Like they know more. Maybe we should add exchange hell to that list. Nice. All right. Sorry. Um, we're moving on. What, is, what are the bits in AMQP, Paul, that you think are, are important? Like, why would I rather use RabbitMQ over MQ, uh, MSMQ? I suppose it comes down to the implementation, really. I mean, that's very much the case, you know. Um, 
I suppose you have to consider what the application is doing. I mean, um, I remember being attending Build in um, 2013, I think it was, and there was a couple of architects from Microsoft, and they made a very good point, which is that the vast majority of traffic going through an application, well, not necessarily the vast majority, but a great deal of traffic going across an application is just noise. And I suppose one, you, you could argue, you could make the point if, if messages die or get lost or 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 or, um, or, or or expire from time to time is that such a bad thing you know so um, but then again if you have a mission critical application where you know each message is absolutely critical in terms of um, getting from point A to point B then that really does um, have an impact on the on the service bus you use the reason I suppose that the only the, the best answer I can give is why we chose RabbitMQ um, as opposed to other offerings such as MSMQ uh, and, and especially Kafka and so forth which is which has become very popular is that RabbitMQ is one of the simpler of the frameworks. You know, if if you want to learn um, microservice architecture, I would recommend going with something like RabbitMQ because, first of all, it's um, simple to set up. It's literally next, next, next installer, or um, simply download the package if you're on Linux. And then they have a very uh, a uh, very nice and friendly user interface that enables you to pretty much see everything that's going on in there in terms of you know publish rates, dispatch rates, uh, the queues itself, and allows you to interact directly with the queues at any given point to purge, delete, and so forth. So that was certainly a driver for us in terms of choosing a queuing technology as right. opposed to jumping in the deep end and going with something like Kafka, which um, I think obviously Kafka is going to probably offer you a lot more power in terms of speed and performance, but you know the barriers to entry in terms of you know the learning curve are arguably slightly higher in that regard. I have not looked at Kafka. I'm, why are you afraid of it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm it's certainly a, not afraid of it. I mean, but, um, <laughs> it's another it's, messaging um, infrastructure, but I guess clearly built for speed. You wake up one day yeah. as a giant cockroach. Nice. No. <laughs> Very Kafka. <laughs> It's a it's Apache based, so like all things Apache based, it's very much sort of um, configurable. You know, you're 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 um, in there at the command line a lot of the time. Whereas with something like Rabbit, you've got a nice web based admin interface that allows you to do anything and is very intuitive. Okay, that makes sense. So this is like all right, RabbitMQ is is not freaking me out enough. I want more knobs and and switches, and so I'll go down to Apache Kafka, a little more bare metal, more in control of everything that's going on in that space. Absolutely. But having said that, at the same time, though, RabbitMQ it does offer tr- tremendous, um, you know, uh, performance gains. For example, uh, f- when last I heard, anyway, which is about uh, twelve to eighteen months ago, Instagram um, run on um, run on RabbitMQ. You know, I think right. they have two two large instances in AWS that uh, that it runs on. Mm-hmm. You know. All right. Um- yeah, I think queuing has got to play a role in here. It's interesting to think about that running throughout the system, just in terms of, I mean, I like this idea that we're going to end up with microservice frameworks that just lay, take about a bunch of complexity off the table. But you are going to have to think through all the behaviors here. So REST is a piece of it. Queued behavior is another piece of it. Shane, we probably can't walk away from queues yet if we don't talk about the response path. Right. Are you using RabbitMQ in a bunch of this stuff? Uh, oh, in yes, your implementations, Paul? Yes, absolutely. So what do you do in terms of a response queue, or do you deal with that? Is it just queued for the writes, not queued for reads? 
No, actually, uh, I'm glad you asked. It's it's cute for everything, um, and that's that's a uh, that that was one of the, I suppose the major problems in terms of dealing with cues was you know the the actual response itself. So um, in one of my blog posts, I, I'll I'll put it up on the link if if, if you don't mind afterwards. It's uh, I talk about a, a concept I've come up with called cue pooling. Um, cue pooling is is the same or, or similar concept as as database pooling, you know, or database connection pooling rather. In terms of you know rather than create a database connection which is relatively expensive when uh, whenever needed, um, we can simply well when one process has finished with a connection, it simply puts it back in the pool uh, available for others. Um, queue pool works uh, based on the same principle. So you know you could argue the best way, the only way to guarantee, I suppose, order delivery really, um, well not the only way necessarily, but one of the most efficient ways is from a design perspective anyway is to assign a specific um, unique queue for each process to achieve to, to, to take the, to receive the message response which of course is ridiculous from an implementation perspective I mean you can't spin up a new queue every time you want to just receive a message so um, in that regard one of the solutions we've come up with is a thing called queue pool, which basically, you know, uh, sets up the application so that there are no queues in the beginning. And um, when the first request comes in, it creates a queue, uses that queue to receive the response message, uh, processes it, and then puts the queue back in the pool available for the next uh, um, request. You can then, I suppose, through performance testing and so forth, you can determine the optimal number of queues that should be in your queue pool based on your application. And you can implement then a kind of bootstrapper if you like to load, let's say that number happens to be 100 queues. You can then implement a bootstrapper that will load 100 queues into your application at um, run at, at, at startup, you know, so that, um, you know, at any given point, you have loads of queues in memory and you've got consistent and thread safety and what have you built in. Right. Paul, is there a downside? Can we talk about the dark side of microservices? And, you know, if I had to think of a dark side, I could think, well, maybe things get too so granular that they become unmanageable. And, you know, we saw this in um, over-architecting relational databases, for example, you know, so spreading things too thin. Yes, I think the same. The, the very same principles apply across the board. You know, I might I might also draw a comparison to object oriented programming. Yes, um, yes. You know, often it feels great when you're doing it. Uh, you're adhering to all the design patterns. You know, you say, oh, "Hold on a minute, now I can't have that here. I've got a favor. Uh, <laughs> I've got a favor." Um, coupling over over inheritance and so forth, and yeah. this is a builder pattern. That's this, that, and the other. And then you know, six months down the line, when you've when, when that code is no longer fresh in your mind, and you have to debug a production issue, you're going, "My God, why didn't I just write this as a single class with a, a ton of functions that would be easier to step Preach through?" Preach on, brother man. Yeah, I think I think the same is is true with microservices. It's all great. Then when you put the thing up and it's been running for six months, and you've got multiple millions of messages, and something's gone wrong somewhere, you're trying to delve in and, and figure out what's going. On that can um, you know you can <laughs> at that point sometimes rethink uh, or, or question your initial decision as regards why you went down that route. So that doesn't mean we shouldn't, though. I mean, Absolutely what's not. what's the balance? Well, um, how do I you suppose... find how do you find balance? <laughs> <laughs> Where's the Zen balance? Yeah. I suppose the balance comes from a, um, a number of areas. I mean, if you look at it from an engineering perspective, first, you've got, uh, first of all, you can now hire, you know, typically places tend to be .NET houses or Java houses or Python houses. Uh, with this, you can not necessarily restrict yourself to a single technology. So mm. that's very attractive in terms of hiring talent, you know, because you might have, let's say, a five if microservices. There's really no reason why each one of those couldn't be written in its own specific language hosted on its own specific technology stack. 
So in that regard, it's very attractive from an engineering perspective in terms of hiring. Um, also from a business perspective, it does offer the opportunity of, uh, you know, parallelism and um, asynchronous communication, which gives you a greater, as I mentioned earlier, window of opportunity to interact with the customer. Right. And then, and then you know, the, the, the flip side to our earlier point as regards the, 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 the bad side of microservices is, they can also work to, to your advantage in that, like, if you've got a specific problem, it's fairly evident generally uh, early on where, or at least in what context, that problem is occurring. For example, is it occurring in the flight service or the hotel service or the taxi service or the service X, you know, or the, <laughs> the service that cleans the, the windows? Um, sure. You know, and, and, and because those services tend to focus on a single problem and a single problem only, it can sometimes be easier, in fact, to, to debug that problem. And that's if they're designed properly. I mean, that, and that's a really good point is that services should be, how, how do you, when you're breaking them up, do you break them up by functionality? You'd break them up by, you know, the category of what they do, you know, sort of design driven, behavior driven. Again, I suppose that comes down to the application. Uh, my preference personally is generally, I mean, unless unless there's some barrier to entry, unless there's some specific, you know, um, reason not to, I would tend to focus on behavior. Really, I, yeah. I, I think um, I think I think if you focus on functionality, um, you can you can quickly run into problems. We can, I mean, you could argue that converting something to a string as a function so you know does that then deserve its own microservice sure. <laughs> you know and, and you can become quite uh, pedantic about things in that regard so i tend to let's 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 not lose track of the, the the business reason behind this or the technology reason behind why we're building this and and, and keep that in mind yeah that's a great point and i wholeheartedly agree with that and and it's just that scenario that you just said you know when you come back to it later you want to find a problem quickly you know that it's in this domain and so you know exactly where to go. Absolutely. So, Paul, there are other aspects we need to concern ourselves with microservices. What does the good architecture look like? What haven't we talked about? Well, um, logging, really, is it, uh, it, it, one of the major features of mm -hmm. any microservice architecture. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't even attempt to implement a, a microservice architecture until... You know, uh, there was a, a, a definitive logging process involved there. Um, you know, my last presentation I gave at the Dublin Microservice Group, I, I, I think I emphasized logging. In, in, I gave a list at the end of bullet points as regards what you should focus on. And I think I mentioned logging three times in that list. <laughs> you know, log everything. Even if it seems irrelevant or, or, or superfluous, just log it. Log it. It'll be useful to you at some point in time. I would rather be in a position where we've got to redesign the system six months down the line and say, guys, we've logged too much information here. Let's let's whittle it down rather than being in a position, <laughs> rather than being in a position, you know, where we've got to log more information, guys. We don't know what's going on here. <laughs> right. And when you're saying logging, are you really talking about generating text files or more of like a, a instrumentation pack, like New Relic or something like that, or ETW? Like, do you have any preferences there? Uh, both, actually. I mean, I would define them very d d distinctly in terms of, you know, New Relic and so forth for application metrics. You know, I, I attended yeah. a conference there at the Web Summit, and um, one of the speakers, um, he was talking about how, you know, um, logging and metrics are, are two completely different things, and they should be treated as such. You know, your your, your logs should be almost human-readable and be, be able to, you know, you should be able to look at any given log and be able to trace at any given point in time and reproduce that point in time. Uh, from a production environment to a dev environment, and I, I think so. In that regard, ironically, you can use tools uh, such as uh, you know RabbitMQ and um, uh, what you call Kibana and so forth. Um, Are you to, a fan to, of Serilog? 
Serialog. Now, that's actually not something I've come across with. What is it? Well, it serializes objects and puts them in the log. So you have a lot of, uh, a lot more context over things that happen. Wow. No, I'd never actually heard of it. It's a really good idea, though. I'll certainly look into it. Yeah, Serialog. We're using it in the hackathon, too, I believe. Nice. Oh, cool. Yeah, but it just speaks to a larger issue of these different kinds of logs, like a play black log. Something you can take and be able to run that workload again is a very different critter from a, a, you know, a feature log or an error log, right? I mean, I think they're all, they're all important to capture. They're just for different purposes. I, I'm mm-hmm. a big believer in anytime any error is raised of any kind. I mean, it's a microservice. It's going to die, yeah. right? That's the end of it. But you've got to capture that information and feed it somewhere where it's likely to be seen, you know, before the system goes down. Like pump pump it in as a work item or as a bug report. The feature logging, that's more of uh all right, are people using the feature the way we think? Are we building the right thing? Like that's it's a valuable discussion, but it's much more about the next rev of the app rather than dealing with the immediate problems. But playback logging, like that's hard to do. To actually have enough data capture to say, let's run this workload again. I, I don't know that I I know of a tool that could that actually captures data well enough right off the bat to be able to play back a custom built microservice uh, as if it was working, especially across multiple services. Absolutely. I mean, um, I don't think you're ever going to achieve that, uh, even with Visual Studio tools like IntelliTrace and so forth, which 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 uh, I suppose are geared toward the same the same concept. Uh, in reality, in, in in any production environment, it's 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 almost impossible. I would say. I mean, I certainly haven't achieved it to do that, but um, I, I think. The more you aspire toward that, you know, basically, you know, I'll put myself in a position if I'm in a production environment trying to trace an error, um, I want all the information I can get my hands on. It, it, that, that, you know, if, if it allows me to even attempt to reconstruct that in a development environment or, 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 or some sort of similar scenario, well, then, um, you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a win if you ask me. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, I think it's it, each piece, in some ways, I think... Um, Deep down, it's like error logging is the easiest and should be done extremely well. There's no excuse, right? Like these are already events being raised. The fact that we leave them in text files to be used as evidence against us in post facto is is kind of a crime. Capturing those and promoting them so that they can be dealt with immediately. They be they are they are the ultimate manifestation of a bug. Though those <laughs> first and foremost, like you do that first. Then you get into this bigger discussion of, do we start working on a playback log? Do we look at a feature logging? Like, how do we actually learn more, or get better at working with our system? Uh, and, it, and it's a complicated conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not spitting stuff to text files. Like, that's the one thing it isn't. Absolutely. Well, Paul, where are you going to be next? What's next for you? Well, um, I've been looking into Google Go uh, a lot lately, and um, I'll be speaking at the Dublin Google Go or the Dublin Go Line group in probably at this stage January, but maybe December. Okay, great. Well, that's yeah. fantastic. Hey, thanks a lot. This has been a, a the hours just flown by, literally. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you guys very much. It's great to be on the show again. I'm very flattered to be invited. All right, thanks, and we'll see you next time. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios. 
a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.